down 30 seconds later and there was a red banded rubber frog in the tub with me. It had come up through the drainage. You are listening to Hello and welcome to the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Tony Crosdale, along with uh, another co-host, Billy Brown. And we are here with Richard Walls, and we're going to talk about Zanzibar. Like and subscribe and all that good stuff. Make sure people you know, spread the word and, and interact with us. We'd love that. And I'll jump in and say that we are talking tonight with um, Richard, who interacted with us. This is how we're talking to him. He had reached out, he emailed us and, and thought it might be neat to talk about urban wildlife and how humans interact with that in urban Zanzibar. And I've got to admit, I never thought about urban Zanzibar before. That's enough to get me excited and learn about someplace new. So um, Richard, why don't you introduce yourself and tell people uh, what it is that you do? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And um, I just want to uh, also mention that the reason I reached out to you all is I'm an avid listener to your podcast. And I enjoy it very much. Um, even though I work in another region of the world, I learn things by listening to you all. And uh, I think you developed a nice community. So it's a pleasure to, to join you. Uh, my name is Richard Walls, and uh, I've been living and working in Zanzibar, which is a, a, an island, a semi-autonomous area of Tanzania in East Africa. Uh, Zanzibar is an island and an archipelago. And there is a, a, a primary city or urban space uh, in the central western portion of the island. And that's where I've been based. And I work and run uh, university programs um, through SIT, which is a, a U.S.-based um, set of academic programs that are run around the world in different countries. And I run the Zanzibar office. We have primarily undergraduate students. But in the last three years, I've also been running a master's program on climate change and sustainability out of that office. And our students, while they're in Zanzibar, um, do a variety of research and course-based projects that interface with a variety of topics, um, but certainly the urban environment uh, and wildlife and human issues uh, in that environment are one of our uh, core subjects. So I've been there for five years. Um, at right now, I'm visiting my parents in the U.S. and, and just joining you while I'm here. But um, I look forward to our conversation. Wonderful. Um, so why don't you start by introducing listeners to Zanzibar? I admit that like, I sort of know where it is on the map. Um, I, I remember that Freddie Mercury was born there. Um, <laughs> but uh, beyond that, uh, I, I sort of I, I think, oh, East Africa, but I don't know a whole lot else about it. So for people who, you know, who've, who've never been there or haven't learned much about it, what's like the, let's say like the three minute or so, um, you know, what do you see when you're in Zanzibar? What's it like? Yeah, Zanzibar, uh, again, is, a, is a, an archipelago and an island. And there are about uh, two million or so people that live in the archipelago. Um, the vast majority of them on the main island, which is known as Nguja. And it's about six degrees south of the equator, so it's definitely a tropical space. And it's about uh, 15 to 20 miles from the East African coast of the mainland continent. So there is an Indian Ocean, a portion of the Indian Ocean, the, Zan the uh, Zanzibar Channel, that has the East African current between the island and the mainland. 
but the island is on the continental shelf. Uh, so there's only about 150 or so feet of water depth between the island and the mainland. Um, it is, of course, uh, populated by Africans, and it is a highly cosmopolitan space, right? It's, it's had a, a town or city uh, in context for about a thousand years. There are a lot of parts of Africa that are inherently urban. Uh, Zanzibar itself uh, is probably best known for Stonetown, which is a historical sector of Zanzibar City, and that is a World Heritage Site um, as of uh, more than a couple of decades ago. Uh, so that is one of the main reasons that tourists tend to visit there, along with um, the beaches, uh, the Indian Ocean itself, um, and the opportunity to visit um, the kinds of things that I think a Westerner would want to do on vacation if they were visiting the region in terms of markets, um, in terms of sites to see and beachfronts. And, but the people in the society are really remarkable. Um, a great diversity of people. This is the Swahili culture. They speak the Swahili language, which um, some of your listeners may not know is uh, the 17th most spoken language in the world. There are about 120 million speakers of Swahili language. Um, and so on an everyday basis, I'm living on the outskirts of town where we have our office and running our programs. Um, and we're very active with the community. We collaborate with Tanzanian scientists. Um, and community members, not only to make scientific investigations on various topics, but also to try to resolve real-world problems um, and to be of assistance uh, to the folks that live in Zanzibar and the scientists and other experts that are there. So um, it, I think it's hard to capture a place as complex and cosmopolitan as Zanzibar in a, in a couple of minutes, but some more facets of the society and the issue we'll talk about probably will arise in our discussion. So um, I'm happy to elaborate if, if any questions arise. Zanzibar is a part of Tanzania. This is one of the more, I think, confusing things uh, to many Americans when they hear about East Africa, because Tanzania is a country itself of about 55 to 60 million people um, that has been a country since the early 1960s. Zanzibar is a part of Tanzania, but is semi-autonomous. So it has its own government. I've been thinking of different ways to sort of get into what the wildlife there is like. I, I know that in our podcast, you know, some topics might be about um, wildlife that you, um, that is relatively, let's say, rare, you might not expect to find in a city. And then other topics are about um, the ubiquitous critters that are sort of a, that are sort of a part of the background landscape. I mean, if, uh, you know, we're in Philadelphia, you're in Richmond, um, relatively similar landscapes i mean sort of piedmont uh, mid-atlantic kind of places and so if you're used to those you'll you maybe will have house sparrows and starlings and robins and mm -hmm. um, gray squirrels and uh you know things like that that are always around right so if you're in um in urban parts of zanzibar what are the like what are the critters that are always there in the background but real quick billy before you get you go there yeah. How do you properly pronounce Tanzania? I've actually been there just to the airport uh, on the way back to Kenya. I say it kind of quick, so it comes across as Tanzania, but it's Tanzania. So it's an A in the middle. Um, you probably were in the Arusha airport, right? Up near Nairobi, near the border with Nairobi? No, no. Uh, was it uh, Dar es Salaam? Oh, it was, the, it was the Dar es Salaam airport. And actually just across the channel from Zanzibar. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I saw Zanzibar. I believe I saw Zanzibar from the air, actually. Now I've, I've 
Like yeah, it's, it. very, it's very close. You can actually see the mainland from the island. So it's uh, it's about 20 miles, but on clear days, you can see uh, the mainland. So let me um, let me get to your question. Um, so first, I probably should have said before, in terms of uh, wildlife, this is a low-lying island, so there's not a lot of topography. Um, it is a limestone foundation, so the foundation uh, of the island is built from uh, past reefs, right? So you have um, a lot of limestone, karst topography, but it's a, a, a flat island. It doesn't have topography. It's also not granitic or volcanic, um, which means that it's a low-lying tropical landscape. Uh, the highest point on the island is a little more than 200 feet above sea level, and that is really an anomaly. Uh, but in terms of, you know, wildlife, and this is part of the reason that I wanted to, to talk with you all, my real familiarity originally with urban wildlife in Zanzibar City, and there are about 800,000 people that live in the city and the surrounding landscape, the metropolitan area, in other words, was by living uh, in town, at the edge of town. Because when you're there and you've kind of put down your work for a few minutes, or even if you haven't put down your work, especially when the sun goes down, the noises become all the more uh, apparent. And those are, are noises that humans are making, but they're also animal noises from you know animals that are crepuscular or are um, nocturnal. Um, and so some of those, for example, are a number of species of bats. We also have, to most people's disbelief, urban galagos. So we have bush babies in Zanzibar City. Whoa. These are these are primitive primates. Yeah, uh, if you're familiar, they're prosimians, uh, which have an origin around 65 million years ago, and they're the most primitive li living primates. They're related uh, to lemurs. Uh, lemurs are also prosimians. Um, so we have these in town, and they make all kinds of calls for various reasons. There are alarm calls, uh, simple communications, and so forth. And they definitely, when you're inside, right, because in the tropics, in most parts of the world, there's no glass on the windows, right? And that's because AC is not necessarily available, and it allows breezes to come inside homes. And so that also exposes you to the noises outside. And so whether it's galagos or fruit bats that might be feeding on fruiting trees um, during certain seasons of the year, um, or whether it's the calls of the African barn owls, which are very common in the urban space. Um, and if, if they sound like American, or the barn owls we know from the United States, it's a, kind of a horrifying noise. It is. It's a very high pitch, uh, especially when they're in flight. Um, and it is the same species. I think the African barn owl is one of the most, uh, as far as its overall spread, one of the most widespread uh, animals in the entire world. Um, and it is the same species, and you see them at night, obviously hunting the various, um, you know, mice, uh, vol uh, voles. We have we have shrews, uh, various kinds of rat, uh, and some small songbirds. Even I've seen them capture, but they're ever present. And and actually, I, I don't know if we want to talk about this at a later point, but owls are really facing some crises in in broader East Africa because many of their eggs are now being collected um, for medicinal and other purposes and for an animal or wildlife trade. But the barn owls in Zanzibar certainly are flourishing despite that. 
Um, I can't resist that. So, so what is the what are the medicinal purposes? What's that trade? I mean, are people? Well, I, I can't imagine people are having like pet barn owls. This is more of a yeah. They're collecting. They're more collecting uh, from the nests, um, and it's not necessarily the barn owls that they're collecting from. Typically, on the mainland, um, this has become particularly a problem in Kenya in recent years. They're collecting from eagle owl nests, oftentimes. Um, however, I have heard through the grapevine that folks are also collecting eggs from other species of owls now. So I haven't seen it happen in Zanzibar itself, but I fear that it may come into the city um, because it has been a problem outside. And it's not for medicinal purposes locally. These are shells that are being traded like many other wildlife products into an Asian market uh, to make medicines um, for those societies, right? Traditional medicines. Got it. Yeah, I never would have thought of that. Um, wow, I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts. Tony, do you have any questions you want to jump in with? How about the the Zanzibar leopard? Any chance that's an urban species hiding in plain sight? Yeah, I thought that that topic would probably be raised. Uh, for those that, <laughs> that don't know, the Zanzibar leopard, um, you know, it is a subspecies of leopard. Um, and is controversial for a variety of reasons within Zanzibar. Um, most biologists believe that it is an extinct animal. Uh, the last specimen that we have, the animal itself or any other kind of biological components, right, which would be, you know, fur, skin, uh, bone, uh, feces, tracks, any of this, that has been verified really comes from the late 1990s. So most biologists believe that the Zanzibar leopard has been extinct for about a generation. There are many um, community members who uh, report sightings occasionally. Um, and there are some that uh, are interested in various other stories about the Zanzibar leopard. And so it remains in the imagination and discussions of the Zanzibari populace. Um, I've had some students that have done research on this, and I'm a, uh, an associate or a friend of um, some of the chief biologists and anthropologists that have also worked on this subject, like Martin Walsh, um, who's been working on um, Zanzibar leopards for many decades, writing about them uh, in, in peer-reviewed journals. And uh, I think, you know, much like in India or other countries that border the Indian Ocean, if there was a Zanzibar leopard, I think uh, in any numbers, it would be likely to find the urban space because of uh, the domestic animals, the uh, wild animals, uh, the refuse, um, et cetera, that exists in cities around the rim of the Indian Ocean, right? We know from India that we see leopards quite frequently there, um, even in the bigger cities like Mumbai or Delhi. So it wouldn't be surprising if they were there. I just think they're either... It, existing in such low numbers now or extinct so that um, you don't get the reports from the city. You get reports or um, any kind of discussion coming from the outlying rural landscape. Cool. Um, so I, I was looking at some of the stuff you wrote um, that you sent us, uh, and I guess this is a bit of a downer topic, but I think we're all... Um, wasn't entirely actually wasn't entirely good. I shouldn't say that. Um, we're coming out of at least. Well, I, I, again, I keep catching myself when I say things that aren't applicable. I was going to say we're coming out of the pandemic. Africa very much is not coming out of the pandemic yet. Um, but uh, you were writing about uh, in a in a place that is that has such a 
um, strong tourist-based economy um, that uh, you, were t- you were writing about, I think it, was a, it must be a park that, that's nearby, um, sort of how does, how do, how, what have been the effects of, of the of sort of a pandemic, sort of global travel freeze um, on how people relate to wildlife? Um, and it's something I honestly hadn't thought a heck of a lot about. I mean, we, we've got stories from the states, you know, the and you know others others places that you see on the news where um, you know you've got shutdowns, and then all of a sudden animals either start moving into previously busy human spaces, or people start noticing them more because they've got more time on their hands at home. Um, but uh, that's that's different than um, what happens when. It, it seemed different than, than what would happen in a place where, um, yeah, you've got shifts in human behavior, but you also have like economic impact hitting people and forcing them to look for different ways to feed their families and stuff. Um, so yeah, talk if you could talk a little bit about like what the pandemic's impact has been on how people relate to wildlife there. That's a, that's a great question. And um, just as a preface, I think there's lots of different ways that um, East Africans, uh, and particularly in an urban environment, would interact with any animal of any type compared to, say, an American. Um, For example, the concept of pet, right, is something that really is very foreign uh, to East African communities. They don't typically keep what we would call pets. Um, They don't treat them like pets. They don't name them. They don't try to clothe them or treat them in some of the extreme ways that uh, Americans often do their dogs or their cats or their birds. Um, So there's a different relationship with um, non-human animals um, in this society. And that's just one example in an urban environment. There are many others. But in terms of the question of tourism, you're absolutely right. Um, there is one national park in Zanzibar, and that is uh, Jozani Chwaka Bay National Park and Biosphere Reserve. Um, coastal East Africa, and that would include the mainland coast and the offshore islands such as Zanzibar, are a biological hotspot. Uh, there are a lot of endemic plants and animals, um, and uh, there's a great density of endemic plants and animals. And just to give you an example, there are over 2,500 endemic plants just in the coastal strips of Kenya and Tanzania, which is a very high um, number of endemic plants. So when we talk about endemic animals, there, of course, are endemic animals uh, in the Zanzibar archipelago. Um, the Pemba sunbird um, is one example. There are many others. Um, because when tourists come, Well, I should say this, when tourists come, usually they're focusing on marine environments. So either beaches, relaxation, snorkeling, because there is a marine component and coral reefs in Zanzibar. But they also oftentimes make their way to the national park because it's only about a 30 minute drive from Zanzibar city. And there they can see one of Zanzibar's endemic animals, which is the uh, red colobus monkey the Zanzibar red colobus monkey. There are about 4,500 on the island based on recent censuses, And it is the symbol of Zanzibar. The government has made it the symbol of Zanzibar. And so many tourists see the symbol in town. They want to see these uh, mammals, these primates. And so they make the trip and, and visit the park. Um, the, the piece that you're referring to that I wrote was really about how COVID-19, or at least the period of COVID-19, has impacted uh, the park and the surrounding communities. 
So uh, it's hard to say what we imagine as Americans when we think about parks and wildlife during a period of COVID-19. But in Zanzibar, a good portion of um, the capital income to the country is through tourism. And that tourism, probably prior to 20 years ago, was mainly coming from the U.S. and Britain, but now is coming from a much greater diversity of countries, the U.S., Britain, um, not just Western Europe, but also Southern Europe, China, India, Kenya, um, are all uh, comprising significant um, numbers of tourists. And they're making their way to the park. And the park in the past couple of years has gotten about 65,000 visitors per year, which is a, a substantial increase over the previous decade on an annual basis. So the reason I raise this is that um, you know COVID dramatically reduced when I was in Zanzibar in April, for example, of this past year, 2021. There were only about uh, five, I believe there were five to 10 visitors the entire month of April, uh, which was less than 1% of the number of visitors the previous April when COVID was absent. So when we think about the impacts, there are definitely some economic impacts, right? How does the park care for its space and its plants and animals and landscapes um, and pay its workers to upkeep and to educate in a period when the park revenue is so dramatically reduced? Um, also, there can be some positives, um, even though COVID obviously is a terrible thing in terms of human health impacts um, and mortality, of course. There are also some positives that can come out of it in terms of, um, for example, many expatriates, right? These are typically uh, Brits in the case of Zanzibar because Zanzibar was a British protectorate during the colonial period. Many Brits are expatriates. So they, they come to Zanzibar, they live there, they work there. And so many of the um, scientists on the island who are not Zanzibari are, are Brits. And most of these Brits went home during the pandemic. Um, for a whole variety of reasons to be with family, for safety precautions, um, public health access, et cetera. And what that created was a void in, in the roles that that expatriate community were performing. That might be scientific research, that might be development work and so forth. And so many Zanzibari stepped in to fill those voids, right? Zanzibari experts who maybe had been peripheralized before um, or had not taken up those roles or had not had an opportunity to take up those roles. And they have developed different solutions to the same problems that were being faced before, but being addressed maybe by non-Zanzibaris. Um, and that includes care for green spaces, right? So not just in the national park, but community members coming together in the urban space of Zanzibar City to care for, manage, and promote public green spaces as ways to gather that were safer uh, in a time of COVID um, than staying at home or being in dense uh, urban settings where you can transmit much more easily. Um, also for wildlife, you know, Josani Chuaca Bay National Park um, has, you know, those 65,000 visitors a year. And when they come, they're introduced to the park. They oftentimes do walks through the forest, right? This is not your big African mainland park where you have lions and elephants. This is uh, a walking park. You see primates, there are miniature antelopes. Um, there are many species of mammals, smaller mammals, um, lots of incredible plants, amphibians, reptiles, etc. So typically the primates that are at the park, at least the ones that are closer to the entrance points, are have been habituated in some ways, right? By having tourists 
uh, frequently flow through those areas, stop and take photographs, talk about the animals. And of course, primates are inquisitive, so they come down um, and inevitably they get habituated to humans to some degree. And the park has had a lot of challenges with trying to communicate to tourists how important it is to maintain a distance and also to try to manage some of these primates so that humans and primates are not interacting for a variety of reasons, um, disease uh, transmission being one potential. But also we don't want to change the, the uh, behavior of um, the primates, for example. So during COVID with reduced number of tourists, the red colobus monkeys and the Sykes monkeys in the park have had an opportunity to return to some of their natural behavior. So they've lost some of that habituation over the many months where we've had reduced number of tourists. Um, this is also allowed, by the way, some of the park's officials to capture feral animals, which appear in the park all the more frequently coming from the outlying urban landscape, right? Because there's less of a flow of tourists disturbing the animals who retreat and hide. Um, so those animals can be humanely collected and relocated, um, which, you know, helps the um, natural flora and fauna to flourish without being impacted by species like domesticated cats, which can come in and, and have a great impact on birds or reptile populations. It's not a podcast episode of ours if cats don't come up somehow. Um. <laughs> Um, well, I should, you know, since you're raising that, I should mention that the number one animal that you see in Zanzibar City is cats. Huh. Uh, cat, remember, we're talking about a, a Muslim society. Um, and so dogs are something that is not uh, permitted. Um, you do occasionally see them, but oftentimes, you know, it's a, it's a Westerner or a tourist that uh, has a dog on a leash. Well, really quick, you're saying it as if it's evident to everybody, but I want to make sure because I, I think it's something I've only learned about relatively recently that there are um, there are taboos or restrictions um, in in sort of Muslim cultures about about touching dogs. Is that it? Well, there can be. There's a great variation, as with any. I mean, uh, Islam is such a, a widespread and diverse religion in many ways. But yes, dogs and pigs are considered the dirtiest of animals and ungodly. And so having interactions with them um, is something that, um, you know, Muslims try to avoid at all costs. Like I said, you do see some pets of Westerners, dogs in town. The only exception to that on the islands really is uh, there are some members of the community, especially young men, that will keep dogs for hunting purposes. But as far as keeping them as pets or wanting them in the city, that is something that, um, you know, repels or most people are repelled by. Cats are quite common, uh, but they're not cared for as pets, at least by, by the vast majority. There are a few Zanzibari women in recent decades that have started to feed cats um, and treat them more like pets and in some cases even welcome them into their home space. But for the most part, cats in Zanzibar remain on the street and they are not cared for as pets. Um, and they can be Factors of disease transmission, um, et cetera, and really are overpopulated within the city, which is the case in many uh, cities around the Indian Ocean, from Egypt to India and elsewhere. The cat thing, I'm just always curious about. Um, in North America, they're a huge problem because there's nothing equivalent here. Now, while cats in Africa might be different species, but there are small Fields. So, uh, the, is the wildlife impact this similar, um, or is it not as much of a problem because they're pre-adapted to 
avoiding small, you know, fields? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there's some complicated <laughs> threads uh, in answering that. One is that the island of Nguja, Zanzibar, separated from the mainland of East Africa only about 8,500 years ago. Um, during the Pleistocene-Holocene transition, right, where the ocean levels rose. And at that point, the island of Nguja separated from the mainland. So before that point, Zanzibar was part of the mainland Africa and had the whole diversity of animals you would expect on the mainland, including elephants, giraffes, lions, etc. Um, over the course of a couple thousand years after the separation, many of these larger animals died away. The only real remnant exception of that being the Zanzibar leopard, which probably persisted because it consumed domesticated stock, right? Cattle, sheep, and goats that people were keeping. Um, so there really today are no wild felids if we consider the Zanzibar leopard extinct in the archipelago. Now, there are uh, mammals, wild mammals, uh, that will eat, um, you know, other small wild mammals or birds and reptiles and amphibians, insects, etc. Um, and that is, I think, the main impact of the cats, right? The cats are eating, um, you know, the mice, rats, and so forth in the city. But in the city, they're also eating, and in the rural areas, also eating particularly reptiles and birds, um, and one of the concerns in Josani Twaka Bay National Park, because it's so close to this urban area, is uh, cat infestations. Because when cats get into the national park, of course, they prey on um, these smaller animals and can impact, especially the sensitive endemic populations, which you know may may not be uh, very large. Endemic populations, for example, a frog. We have some running frog species in Josani Twaka Bay that are only found there. Um, small, very colorful frogs, um, again, endemic to the island, some of them only identified by science in the past 25 or so years. Um, so we want to keep those threats at bay. Those are the primary set threats I see from cats other than as disease vectors. We all have stories, you know, you've, you've listened to the podcast, you've heard Tony's stories ranging from, you know, reaching out and touching groundhogs, and other fun stuff. Like, uh, and I've got plenty of wildlife stories. What do you have any fun? Um, like I don't know, like like the, the like good wildlife, whether it's the the galagos or the or, or flying fox or something else that like you tell at dinner parties. Well, I think it pro probably if I was to share share them, you know, they relate back to some of these nocturnal animals that I see and hear at night. The barn owl, the galagos that oftentimes are running across my roof. And I've actually seen those um, galagos, um, and there's a variety of galagos in East Africa. Um, these are the short-eared greater galago. There are two galago species on, on Zanzibar Island. They're about uh, you know, a five to seven pound um, uh, primitive primate. They have a long tail, um, but look a little bit like a teddy bear plus a long tail. Um, and I've actually seen them being marauded on many occasions in the evening by Indian house crows which are not endemic or, um, you know, are not native to Eastern Africa. They're, they're from South Asia, were brought on oceanic vessels and can be very aggressive. In fact, they've outcompeted the local crow, the pied crow. Um, but in addition, what I would say is, you know, at our office, we have all kinds of interesting wildlife just at our office. I wish I, you know, I wish I could have, or we, we could discuss now a couple of those examples. We have the uh, giant African land snail, 
which you know comes in many species, but is ever present, consuming mainly organic matter and refuse. Uh, these guys can weigh up to half a kilo, so <laughs> over a pound. I mean, they're massive. They're not your, you know, your your sidewalk slug um, that you see in the United States after rainfall. We've got a variety of lizards, um, including at least one that is popular in the pet trade, uh, the Pemba green gecko. Uh, but we also have the 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 Sudan plated lizard, which is quite large. It can be over a foot long, and does it does have mice on its menu. Uh, we see those on our front stoop uh, fairly commonly, and the birds are quite interesting. We have the uh, a number of sunbirds, right? Sunbirds are old world. Um, there are no hummingbirds in the old world, right? Hummingbirds are all in the Americas, um, and uh, and in the old world we have sunbirds. They serve very similar purposes in terms of their their size, their look, their function, and so forth. So that's kind of an interesting story. We have a number of really interesting birds as well that are in Zanzibar City in particular for its verticality, right? This is a low-lying island. So we have peregrine falcons um, in the city. We have um, the African barn owls I was mentioning. We have fork-tailed drongos, which typically uh, are insect hunters and like high perches, uh, power lines or sides of buildings to catch many of these large insects. You oftentimes just see them competing with bats in the evening. Uh, trying wow. to snag the evening's insects. Um, there are uh, scorpions, bark scorpions uh, that you'll see in the urban environment. The African uh, brown house snake is very common. We also oh, have. It's a favorite of mine. Okay, cool. <laughs> this is this is another one that I know you'll be interested in. Is the red banded rubber frog? I don't know, Tony, if you if you saw these when you were in uh, East Africa. It's a hell of a name. <laughs> they are a black frog that has red bands and. They are particularly drawn to watery spaces and house and houses. So they like drain pipes. They like sinks. Um, I remember one of the first times I was in East Africa back in the early 90s, I was in the um, faculty visiting housing at the university. And I had woken up from my 30-hour uh, set of plane flights from the U.S., got up in the morning to get in the shower, turned on the shower, was waking up, looked down 30 seconds later, and there was a red banded rubber frog in the tub with me. It had come up through the drainage <laughs> of the tub and was, uh, you know, we were taking a shower together in effect. That is awesome. But this is, a, this is an animal that you see in rural spaces, but it really likes the urban because it can have uh, greater access to uh, water, you know, fresh water, consistent fresh water in the drainage pipes and in the sanitation systems of the city versus in outlying landscapes, which may be drier and we're uh, maybe less consistent. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So I think we'll, we'll have to end on that anecdote or that, that species. I, I always say I wish I had more interesting things come up through my toilet um, and my drains. It's a, it, we talked to people about everything from cobras and now um, the, the rubber frogs. Um, but with that, I think we'll have to, we're going to wind, wind up. We're going to thank Richard for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. And now, now I'm, I did not say red banded rubber frog, but now I'm on a red banded rubber frog, um, more, you know, rabbit hole. Add to the list <laughs> of band names, Tony. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I want to thank you all. It's it's been a pleasure, and uh, I'd love to talk further, even even you know, offline. Or if folks want to email me, I'm happy to. Hey, we're to down for an update at some point, man. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. All right. Yeah, we'll come well, visit you someday too. Yeah, please right. do. Cool. Well, hey, everybody, thanks for listening. Um, please, you know, of course, share this with people uh, who you want to, you know, share the podcast with. 
rate us highly on your podcast listening apps of choice and don't be a stranger.